Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Less than 1% of Pennsylvania's electricity is generated from solar energy. The Pennsylvania Department of Environmental Protection would like to increase solar energy production. And it has initiated a U.S. Department of Energy funded program called Finding Pennsylvania's Solar Future. Solar experts from state and local government, solar industry experts, business leaders, and alternative energy advocates gathered last week in Harrisburg to lay the groundwork that would set the state on a course to be a solar energy leader by the year 2030. Joining us to talk about this initiative and other energy and environmental issues is Pennsylvania's acting secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection, Patrick McDonald. Secretary McDonald, welcome to the program. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. If you have a question or comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right. Finding Pennsylvania's solar future. Describe that initiative. Certainly. Well, as you say, we received a grant from the U.S. Department of Energy Sunshot Initiative so that we can pull together stakeholders from across the state so we can look at market issues, policy issues, the issues that drive solar development in the state. And really, the the aspirational goal is to come up with a plan that gets us to 10 percent solar by 2030. Mm -hmm. Now, we're going to talk about uh, how you get there in, in just a few minutes. And actually, all these plans are in place. You're in the very early stages of this. But take me back to 2004. There was a, a law enacted uh, dealing with uh, renewable energies. What did it say? Sure. There was, uh, it's, it's called the Advanced Energy Portfolio Standards Act of 2004. And it put us on a path to get to 2021, 18% of uh, alternative energy sources. The way that worked is there were tier one resources, 8%. Uh, those are things like wind, uh, small scale hydro, et cetera. And then tier two resources like our waste coal plants, like larger hydro projects, things like that, 10%. Uh, and then within that tier one, 8%, half of a percent of that has to come from solar by the time we get to 2021. And it scales up over time. So when we get to 2021, we get to that half percent solar, and then that's the requirement going forward unless we change things and envision a different solar future. You know, one of the things that uh, I have to catch myself, and I know there are a lot of other people out there who do the same thing, that it's 2017. 2021 sounds so far off, but it's only four years down the road now, as just as 2030, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, is only 13 mile, uh, years down the road. So, you know, when you're at less than 1% of solar per, as part of uh, Pennsylvania's energy uh, portfolio, that doesn't sound like a lot. No, it, it really isn't a lot. And, and as I say, we have a half a percent requirement. Today, we're at 0.15%. And, and part of that is because some of the credits we generate uh, through the program actually come from out of state. So it's it's not just in-state generation that, that the uh, Advanced Energy Portfolio Standard Is Act. it part of the grid? Yes. It okay. has to come from within the PJM, who, who operates the grid for our state and 12 other states. Um, but any solar produced within that grid is eligible for sale here. Mm -hmm. With the knowledge that solar uh, makes up less than 1% of the energy portfolio, uh, your goal is to be at 10% by the year 2030, as I mentioned, 13 years down the road, not a long time. Seem rather aggressive. What has to happen to get there? Well, I, I think, first of all, it, it's useful to look at, at the history of this. As you say, in 2004, we set this goal. At that point, 
the cost for installing solar w- was expensive. Today, prices have come down uh, uh, extremely. We've seen a 64% reduction in the installed solar price in Pennsylvania over the last five years. Is that industrial uh, and residential? Yes. Okay. Uh, that's that's total installed price. And uh, uh, so, one, I think the market forces around this have changed. You see, as you, as you drive through uh, South Central Pennsylvania and other areas of the state, just more solar panels on mm-hmm. roofs. Uh, uh, it's become more ubiquitous. So what we're looking at is how do we take advantage of those market forces and how do we drive things in a way uh, that get us to that 10%. Since we've come up with the half percent in 2004, a lot of the other states have have passed us in this. And there's significant programs in places like New Jersey and New York and Massachusetts uh, that are not just generating electricity, but generating jobs. And we want, we want to be part of that. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about all those things in just a moment. But um when you talk about getting to 10%, and I'm going to ask you a little bit more about some specific plans on how to get there, but are industrial customers, are they more the target than residential? The reason I ask that is because, obviously, they're on a bigger scale. They probably have more money at their disposal for installation. Uh, so as part of this plan, would you go after industrial customers a little more aggressively than residential? Uh, I, I don't think we've we've necessarily made that determination yet. And and to put it in some perspective, again, there's there's a whole range of this. There's certainly industrial customers can install, commercial customers can install on their rooftops, residential, and then there's also utility scale solar that uh, you can install the way you would install any other power plant and just generate the power and and and, uh, uh, and the revenue from from uh, selling it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something you mentioned, uh, uh, one of the bigger objections to solar, I've heard so many people over the years say that, oh, I'd love to go to solar because I know down the road I'll have a small electric bill, maybe not an electric bill at all, but that installation cost up front, you said it's come down 64%. Give us a ballpark figure of what it costs for a residential customer, for example. Sure. Uh, uh, today we look at uh, the range is between twelve thousand five hundred and up to sixteen thousand for your average size installation. That's a, a, a the, the five uh, kilowatt uh, installation, and that uh, incorporates into it the investment tax credit that's offered by the federal government. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, what about uh, those tax credits? I mean, it, it, I know very early on, and I don't know if this was part of the two thousand four Renewable Energy Act or not. But uh, there were tax credits from the state. The feds were offering some, too. Where do we stand with that? I mean, I've heard over the years that that has decreased somewhat. Sure. The, early on, we had uh, the, the credit program. We had some uh, tax incentives. We had the PA Sunshine program, which was grants uh, for solar installations. We had uh, the recovery uh, dollars from the federal government. Some of that went to solar, so there was a lot of build-out. Today, really, the only uh, uh, revenue sources that we have are, one, that, that federal investment tax credit of 30%, uh, which which will last until 2021, and then uh, a very, very little bit of money through our Pennsylvania Energy Development Authority, where, for example, uh, later this summer, w- there'll be a 10-megawatt installation being brought on uh, using those dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I hate to bring up negatives, but sure. uh, here's one that uh, objection I've heard over the years with solar. Uh, you know, I've heard people say that when they hear that less than 1% as part of the state's energy portfolio, they say, well, that's that's tiny compared to oil, coal, what are the, you know, the other sources of energy we have here in Pennsylvania. And they've questioned the viability of solar 
and actually some of the uh, other renewables too, and wonder whether we'll ever get there. Sure, and, and I think that that's where I go back to the way the pricing of this has changed and the fact that not just that upfront installed price, but there are a lot of different financing mechanisms people have today. Uh, a, a lot of companies have, have entered this space taking advantage of uh, net metering rules, you know, the ability to get for, for a residential customer, for example, to get paid uh, by their utility for installing the solar um, and, and being able to compete within that. So we're seeing market forces starting to drive uh, decisions being made in a way that you can't even say was happening two or three years ago. I mean, again, I've heard other people say government can't drive this. It has to be the market that drives it. And and I would say uh, that is one of the reasons why we put this uh, uh, project together, this process together, is so that we can understand what are the market mechanisms, where do we still have issues, and, and to give a, a couple uh, examples, I'd say we're seeing better use of, of, for example, residential through some of these financing tools. What we haven't seen a lot of is, for example, community solar, where we see that in other states, and that's you know okay, a centralized. You that, yeah. uh, it's basically imagine some centralized solar panels that a residential neighborhood can buy into, as opposed mm. to installing it on their own roof, and that opens up the market to renters, to lower income. Uh, Etc. So uh, we haven't really seen that take off in the state. We haven't seen a lot of utility scale uh, solar within the state. So understanding what are the market drivers, what are the policy drivers, getting getting uh, the right group of people together to really tackle those issues. Why haven't we seen it in the state? That's a good question. That's really what what the project is about. Um, uh, we have. Uh, we're a deregulated state, so we see uh, a lot of different market entrants into the state in a way you don't see in in other states that that are still vertically integrated, still regulated, uh, have the utility basically controlling uh, the entire uh, supply chain. Uh, we're, we haven't seen it in the state, and, and uh, it's it's something I've actually talked to some of the suppliers about. Uh, how do we get more of this? And that's what we hope to dig into through this process. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, you had this meeting last week that mm -hmm. had a lot of the stakeholders uh, involved. Uh, what do the utilities say? What do the suppliers say? I mean, are they on board with this? Or, I mean, do they see this as something viable in the future? Or do they say it farther down the road? Uh, I, I think they see it as viable in the future. And I, I don't want to speak for them, but I think what uh, you see in particular within uh, the utility space is a recognition that you can deal with congestion in a number of ways in, in the grid. And some of it is more lines, but some of it is also putting power, distributing power in different areas. And solar is really good at this. Solar is something you can put on rooftops. You can distribute across the grid so that you're smoothing out a lot of those congestion issues. So it's not just a generation source. It's also a grid management resource. Mm -hmm. Let's take a phone call from Russ in Lancaster, but I understand you're on the road, Russ. You're on the air. So, uh, yes, thank you for taking my call. Uh, thank you, Secretary. You're welcome. Um, mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm hands-free. Don't, don't worry. Oh, I, good. I owned a, a small solar installation company back in the when things got hot and, and when Corbett uh, became governor, unfortunately, with the pro-fracking initiative, had to close my business. My question is, during that time, uh, the New Jersey market seemed to have thrived and is still thriving. And I was curious if we have any lessons to be learned from our neighbor to the east there 
And, and secondly, uh, I'm originally from the coal region of Pennsylvania and Schuylkill County with a lot of hardworking people that have been down and out on their luck with jobs. How do we mobilize that, those types of people and get them to kind of come the renewable way? Uh, so it's a two-part question. I hope they're not too unrelated, but oh, thank no. you very much. They are two very good questions. Thank you very much for your call, Russ. Let's start with his, his first one. Yes, Pennsylvania went through a boom with uh, with fracking, with uh, natural gas. I mean, I guess you can say to a degree we still are in it. Maybe we're not producing as much as we did. A lot of that has to do with the price of natural gas, and we'll talk about some of those things too. But there was, by the state, there was a real emphasis on natural gas production. I guess the question that uh, Russ is asking is, uh, you know, will we go back to more emphasis on renewal, renewables? Sure. And and the answer uh, from my perspective there is we need it all, right? So solar, in the same way we're a leader on natural gas, we need to become a leader in solar. Um, I think, as, as, as Russ said, there are some things we can learn from New Jersey. And I think more than just them having you know 50% renewable uh, goal uh, etc the the real instructive thing is the reason they went down some of these paths is because of their experience with hurricanes and and the reliability of their system uh, recognizing the fact that distributing these resources turning uh, light posts and telephone poles into uh, electricity generators uh, was just smart for them from a resiliency standpoint Mm-hmm. All right, his second part of his question is one of the big ones, uh, jobs. How do we make that transition? And, you know, there's no guarantee that someone who worked in a coal mine or worked in the coal mining industry is going to get a job, uh, you know, making the same kind of money, uh, you know, working on renewables, but creating jobs. Absolutely. Um, well, first, I, I, again, I think it's instructive to point out places that have been aggressive on this, Massachusetts, New Jersey, you know, Massachusetts has 15,000 people working within the solar field. New Jersey has 7,000. Today, we have 3,000 uh, within Pennsylvania. So I think there's there's a significant market opportunity there uh, in terms of job creation. Uh, but I think the other part of this is, as I say, uh, we need it all. We need all of the resources. And uh, that natural gas price drives a lot of these decisions. It drives the decision on whether or not you end up putting solar panel on your house. It drives a decision as to whether or not uh, a coal mine stays open. So the way the, these markets interact is as we go through this uh, solar futures process, one of the things we want to make sure we understand so that we're taking advantage of uh, market forces, not kind of driving against them. What kind of jobs, though? I mean, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, manufacturer, obviously, we'd have to bring, uh, I know that, uh, you know, in, in Pennsylvania, we've had uh, manufacturers of uh, of the the windmills, for example. Sure. Uh, but what kind of jobs? Installation or just what? Uh, installation and manufacturing are the two primary ones. We already have over 100 manufacturing uh, businesses within the state. We have over 300 in, in, installer uh, uh, companies within the state. So as we ramp this up, we'll need more and more of that. And you're talking about uh, uh, everything from from uh, electricians to construction, you know, in terms of the, the uh, j- kind of jobs we'd be looking at. You know, this isn't necessarily your area, but how involved is DEP in attracting some of those manufacturers to the state? Um, I think we, we would be more involved in particular if... Uh, uh, as we set this, uh, uh, go through this process and set us on a better 
future and and better message again it's we kind have, of a chicken or an egg thing. A, absolutely mm -hmm. you know we need we need the incentives and we need the market here to drive uh the additional job so uh as we see this build out and and i think again instructive in in part of russ's question as he said having the solar installation business we went through a real boom and bust within the state within the solar industry we had the 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 energy credits we had um, sunshine we had the recovery dollars we had credit prices that were in the hundreds of dollars a lot of people rushed into that market oversupply and then we end up with 20 or 30 dollar credit prices and and a lot of the businesses couldn't hold on after that you're listening to smart talk on WITF your home for NPR news and all things regional I'm Scott Lamar our guest today is Pennsylvania's acting secretary of the Department of Environmental Protection Patrick McDonald we're right now talking about the solar panel and an initiative the state is involved with to make solar energy part of at least 10 percent of the state's energy portfolio by the year 2030 1-800-729-7532 send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at smarttalk, WITF. Again, 1-800-729-7532. Mr. Secretary, we have uh, several callers on the line. I want to get to them as soon as we can, but I do want to follow up on kind of the sp specific plans for this initiative and how you do get to that goal of uh, 10% by 2030. Obviously, you're in the very early stages of this. Correct. And a whole lot of it, you're going to hear ideas for plans. But in in general, broadly, how do you think we get there? Um, I think, as you say, we're very early in the process. And, and one of the things we want to understand is, is for example, uh, how did the alternative energy credit process work? Um, what what should we do? You know, there's been initiatives to to quote close the border on on the credits so that uh, the solar has to be generated within the state. We're only one of two states uh, that allow the credits to to come in from other places, at which which leads to some of those oversupply issues. Uh, so there's some basic things like that. Understanding even uh, the detail of how the utilities, uh, what the utility rules are around interconnection and what the experience is with the uh, uh, resident or commercial in, uh, uh, complex that wants to install these. How do they interconnect with the grid? How do they interconnect with their, their uh, utility? Driving at all of these rules, every one of these things leads to transaction costs. So it's really about how within the market do we reduce those transaction costs for, for the person who wants to make the decision. This is from a grant uh, from uh, EPA, from uh, the federal government. $550 million? $550,000. Oh, $50,000. <laughs> oh, okay. That would solve that, a lot yeah, of problems. Yes, it, it would. Yeah, there goes your, there, that was three times your budget. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. I misspoke. <laughs> Let me repeat that $550,000. Okay, but that, and it's kind of ironic because my question is going to be that doesn't sound like a whole lot of money. No, I mean for for uh, engaging in the process, I think it's it's really good, and and we've had uh, tremendous support from our stakeholders. So there's a lot of time, hours, effort being devoted by utility representatives, solar industry representatives, environmental representatives on this uh, that are contributing to it. So the five hundred fifty thousand is the federal piece. There's a lot bigger level of effort going on here. All right, let's take some phone calls. Abe is in Lancaster. Abe, you're on the air. Yes. Good, Good morning, Scott. Good morning. How are you? Good. I'm doing well. Hey, my question is, um, our weather patterns here in Pennsylvania can get 
very cloudy fall winter um is solar generation really a good option for us to be looking at Abe, you have one of the basic questions that is always asked. Thank you very much for your call. And that is, that is a basic question. I mean, let's face it, uh, during this winter, especially the last few weeks, we have had a lot of clouds. Absolutely. And, and but you still get uh, enough sun. We get, uh, on average, four to four and a half hours of, of sun production hours in terms of the way they measure this. Uh, to put that in some perspective, Germany, which has more solar than any other nation, has three and a half uh, hours. So we're actually, we get more sun than even Germany does, which is heavily reliant on solar at this point. Um, we have a lot of rooftop. We have a lot of uh, open space that is is prime candidate. And in fact, there was a, a, a study done by one of the federal energy labs that said 30% of our energy usage could come just from rooftop solar with the rooftops that we have in the state. Do you need a backup? Um, not if you're grid connected, and that gets into some of that inc- interconnection with the utility, although we are seeing more and more interest in storage uh, technologies as well that connect to the solar. Mm-hmm. But I guess way back when, very early when uh, solar was really new, uh, you would hear people say, well, you better have a backup in your home if you're going to go solar. Uh, you know, I don't know what that would be, you know, whether you're replacing an oil furnace or natural gas or something like that. That's no longer needed. No, I, I'm, you can go completely off grid and you have to think through how you go about doing that. But most of the installations we see today are grid interconnected. So they are uh, drawing power off the grid when they don't have the solar and then putting the, the solar power out onto the grid when they do have it and getting paid, uh, e- either getting paid for that or at least having the difference subtracted from their electricity bill. So that power coming from the grid could be coming from anywhere. Correct. Okay. All right. Let's take another call from Richard in Camp Hill. Richard, you're on the air. Hello, Richard. Go ahead. Richard, don't listen to your radio because there's a delay. Uh, Richard, go ahead. All right, I'm going to put Richard back on hold because I hear the radio in the background. I know he is there. (laughs) Jim is in Enola. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi, Hi, Secretary. I have a question that I hope is not too far in the weeds. My wife and I just installed solar panels, and we... uh, are going to have net metering. We, we're we're going to you know sell the electricity back to the uh, grid to the extent that we that we generate it. Uh, we had before we got solar panels. We uh, were with a uh, a very green energy supplier uh, that uh, generates almost all of their electricity from wind and and uh, solar and so forth. You might be able to figure out which one I'm talking about. What we found out was that that particular one does not allow net metering because they're not regulated by the PUC. We are trying to find a relatively green uh, uh, supplier uh, for uh, net metering. Do you have any insights on that? Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Um, it's more of a, and thank you for the question, it's more of a question for uh, Public Utility Commission. I know there are different rules, and, and the net metering uh, requirements and rules really do go to uh, the electric distribution companies themselves, who, who uh, if you haven't changed to an alternative supplier, they, they serve as your default supplier. Um, so being off of that default supplier creates some additional challenges. And, again, that's that's exactly the kind of questions we're going to be addressing through this process. Let's take a call from David and Duncannon. David, you're on the air. Yes. Uh, I've talked to several people that have installed solar, and I 
found a strange phenomenon. I understand his comment about allowing any state to sell energy credits here, but the renewable energy credits you get are sold through a broker. And I've talked to several people, and some of the very early adopters, I don't know, probably 2008, 2009, are getting two, three, four hundred dollars a credit for renewable energy. And the later adopters are getting like $20, $30. Why the big difference? And they're still getting it. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing it may be some scheme where the state does not allow you to sell to as many other states, or I don't know how the market's restricted, but they're still getting the big money. And I'm just wondering why the later adopters are not. All right. Thank okay. you very much for your call. Uh, I don't know. I can't. I can't really speak to the specifics, other than to say the, as I said, the price of the credits we've seen drop considerably, and that's that's again one of the things we'll be dealing with through the process. If I had to wager a guess, I'd say uh, those early adopters probably locked in through a power purchase agreement with someone at that rate. Uh, and now we're getting that rate, and and those later adopters aren't going to get that same rate. So it's someone's entered into a longer-term contract early on that, that results in, in uh, that kind of payment. We have a similar question here. Richard Lancaster asks, uh, he says, I installed a 21.1-kilowatt solar array on my barn roof and went online in November 2010. I've generated over 179 megawatts to date and have received less than $3,000 in SREC payments. My last check for 11 SRECs came two days ago and was for $40. Uh, my friend in Delaware has a 6-kilowatt system on his beach house and gets $500 per year for his SREC per year because Delaware is solar-friendly. Pennsylvania allows allows SRECs to be sold here for uh, to be sold here from any other state. Delaware does not, and our legislature keeps the utility renewable requirement so low that our market will always be low price. My system cost me $130,000 and never will pay for itself. No, and and uh, you know I think that's consistent with with what uh, just talking about with the credit price. We've seen low credit prices. That's a combination of the relatively low uh, requirements, the oversupply, and then allowing those credits to come in from other uh, states. Uh, those are all, again, issues I think we need to address head on if we're, we're going to see solar really reach its potential within the Commonwealth. When you say we, who do you mean we? Uh, this is through that process, is, is how do we uh, identify those policy uh, initiatives? How do we identify those market initiatives that get out of the way of, of um, uh, what's holding back solar, which right now, as I say, I think it's a, fu- a market fundamental that we have oversupply in the amount of solar being sold, you know, being available, being sold. We have those credits being sold in Delaware. And uh, once the credit requirements are fulfilled in Delaware, whatever is left gets sold here. Same in New Jersey, Ohio. That's devaluing our credits here so that uh, people who are making substantial investments, as, as the caller just mentioned, uh, are, are seeing their credits devalued by, by these credits coming in from other states. You'll need help from the legislature. Absolutely. No, and, and that's w- we want to uh, work through a process that, that puts together common sense uh, uh, initiatives that recognize what the market dynamics are, what the policy dynamics are, where the right levers are in order to get us there. Okay, so let's look at the politics of this a little bit. Sure. I know you probably don't want to address this as much as <laughs> the question I'll ask, but you have legislators who are representing 
coal mining areas, Re- uh, legislators who come from areas where natural gas is, is being drilled. What incentive do they have for helping out here and uh, trying to promote solar? Well, again, I'd say uh, solar delivers some environmental benefits, which is why uh, the state's energy office is located with, within the Department of Environmental Protection. But it's also a resilience effort. And part of uh, what, w- what we're looking to identify is each of these resources has advantages and disadvantages, both environmentally, but in terms of how they function on the grid. Solar has a role to play in terms of how it functions on the grid, and that is the conversation we want to have here. Mm-hmm. Right, let's take a call from Eve, who's in Delaware County. Eve, you're on the air. Hi, thank you. Hi, Secretary McDonald. We met Hello. about a month ago in Harrisburg when we were talking about the Mariner East expansion project. Excellent. And um, hi, how are you? Good. I have uh, two points today. One with regard to um, solar being market driven. We did try to do solar here, and even though the house is now facing, it wasn't um, something that's feasible. And so we're still waiting for a program that's feasible for, um, for regular homeowners across the state. So my second question is, I'm curious how the pipeline expansion projects across the state and the idea of the fossil fuel energy hub fits in with the vision for for Pennsylvania to become a leader in solar energy or renewable energy. They seem to be in conflict with one another or a split focus. Can you talk about that a little bit? Thank you very much for your call, Eve. Sure. Um, well, on the first, obviously, the, the process we're engaged in is, is exactly uh, to take on those market issues that lead to someone who wants to install solar not seeing the financial incentive there, not seeing the market there to do it. On the other, uh, on the question about pipeline and fossil fuel industry, as I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I'm a firm believer in we need it all. Uh, I think we can responsibly develop the resources of the state. Solar is a resource within the state. Natural gas is a resource within the state. Uh, so I, I, I don't see conflict between those. It's, again, that question of what is the right role, uh, right amount for, for each of these things to play, and let's have that conversation. All right. I want to switch gears for a moment because sure. uh, you only have a few minutes left. Absolutely. And I, there are so many things left. Talk. <laughs> You've said that you'd like to be on the show more often, so Absolutely. I'm going to hold you to that. Excellent. Um, I want to talk about the Trump administration, what's coming out of Washington. Uh, it has not been made official, but uh, you know it's been leaked that the Trump administration plans to cut uh, the, the budget of the Environmental Protection Agency by 25%. That has an impact on what happens in the states. How would that impact what happens here in Pennsylvania? Well, uh, as you say, it's it's uh, uh, it was leaked. It's still a little speculative, and the details of what they do and how they do it matter. But to put it in some perspective, you know, some of the things talked about being zeroed out, for example, are the environmental justice program. Uh, Pennsylvania, really, in, in a lot of ways, was the the start of the environmental justice movement with with the issues in Chester. So that would be something of grave concern. What what, what is that? Just real quick. Uh, environmental justice, is, and, and we're going to be doing some listening sessions. Uh, uh, within the next couple of months to, to refocus on on the effort. But environmental justice is fundamentally looking at those areas of uh, low-income minority populations that are underrepresented, underserved, uh, don't have the same access to information uh, about our permitting processes and, and really um, uh, connecting with them. 
up front so we can get them more involved in our processes. Uh, radon, which which you you just did a show on uh, recently, they're talking about zeroing that out uh, in terms of the grant we would receive. And then there, one of the things buried within there was a 30% cut to our state and tribal assistance grants. These are grants that uh, are effectively the funding we receive from the federal government in order to implement federal programs under the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, uh, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act. Uh, this is the basic permitting and inspection we do on behalf of the, uh, of the federal government that would be significantly impacted by this, this cut. All right. Speaking of inspections, mm-hmm. in December, the EPA uh, sent a letter to Pennsylvania saying that you were dangerously low. I don't know where dangerously was the word that they used, but they said that you were low in the number of inspections, uh, inspectors that and resources that Pennsylvania has when it comes to water safety. That, uh, By the way, how many inspectors do you have? Uh, I don't know the number off the top I'd of my head. I heard 54. We, yeah, I believe that's right. We have, uh, I think the, the key stat there is we have one of our sanitarians, one of our inspectors for every 149 systems, and that is more than double the national average. So one person is responsible for over twice the number of water systems in our state as you would typically see in an average other state. So what do you do about it? Well, what we've uh, been doing, I'd say, are two things. One, one, uh, working internally to just improve our own efficiencies, but that only gets us so far. The second thing is uh, we're working to put together a fee package for the public uh, water systems. Over time, we've had general fund cuts within the department. One of the things people don't realize is the general fund only funds pockets of what we do in the agency, and it, uh, when you have a general fund cut, water programs are particularly hard hit. So this is something we, we've been dealing with uh, uh, for a while. So we, we have a fee package in order to make up some of that gap, bring on an additional 33 inspectors uh, to do this work. Um, also, you know, had had my budget hearing last uh, week. There was a lot of issue within the legis- a lot of interest within the legislature about the issue. So, uh, I think we're at starting point on budget uh, in terms of the discussion about it. The the, the fees you mentioned though would be like seven and a half million dollars once realized, but from what I understand, that may be a year or two down the road before you could do that. Correct. Are there water systems in the state? Water in this state that. Potentially, we could have some problems, some health problems. Well, I mean, we've we've seen issues around lead uh, throughout the state, uh, particularly within the Pittsburgh area. We've been working with with them and through them on those issues. Um, we are behind on number of inspections. We're behind on uh, dealing with outstanding violations, and and I won't say that that isn't a, a concern. Uh, for me, for the agency, for the governor. So it's something we're looking at ways of, if we can address it uh, in the interim while we're waiting to get the fee package up and up and running. But the governor's budget that he proposed gives you a less than 1% increase in your budget. Uh, I don't know if that goes for inspectors. I mean, again, this is a time when fracking and uh, natural gas drilling, uh, that even though prices are down, drilling's down a little bit, still, we went through that whole, pro- that whole boom with... with less than the optimum number of inspectors. If you had your way, how many inspectors would you have? 
That I don't have an answer to off the top of my head. And it, it Dream big, very... Secretary. Huh? Dream big, Secretary. Um, well, I, it's, again, I think for drinking water in particular, I think the 33 that we've identified is is a good number uh, that gets us where we need to be for, for dealing with that. I think beyond that, it's a program-by-program program evaluation. Is there enough oversight of uh, natural gas drilling? Uh, we've that's an area where we've actually uh, it's it's two stories right one is uh, we've seen the number of permits go down we are primarily funded through our permit fees so we've seen the amount of revenue that we bring in to do that come down uh, and we've reduced number of permitters number of inspectors but we've also seen because of that an increase in the number of inspections and we're actually in a way we weren't three or four years ago hitting most of our inspection targets for the for the industry well the next time i have you on we will talk a little bit about pipelines because that Excellent. is a big issue here in pennsylvania right now indeed. and we're going to be talking about it a little bit on tomorrow's program as well pennsylvania's acting secretary of the department of environmental protection patrick mcdonald secretary thank you very much for being with us today thank you for having me you're listening to smart talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The Historical Society of Pennsylvania recently stumbled upon a letter written by William Penn 336 years ago bemoaning the insistence of the British King Charles II in naming Pennsylvania after the young Quaker. Penn, who was once imprisoned in the Tower of London by King Charles for blasphemy, was being exalted by the king, an honor that belied Penn's modesty. Joining us today from her office in Philadelphia to talk about the discovery of that letter and how it reflects upon the philosophies of her state's namesake is Beth Twist-Houting. She's Senior Director of Programs and Services at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania and also Vincent Fraley, Communications Manager at the Historical Society. Welcome both of you to the program today. Thanks for having us. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I have to mention that one of the reasons that uh, we are doing this program today is because uh, Charter Day, uh, it was March 4th in the 1600s, that uh, when uh, William Penn was granted the, the land that became Pennsylvania, and so uh, that, that it's... You know, how many years are we looking at now? I'm trying to do the math in my head. Was it 336 years ago? That would be uh, all right. I'm just not, about right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna quiz you on the on the math right now. All right. So let's talk a little bit more about this story. Uh, you know, we had always heard growing up in in Pennsylvania schools that Pennsylvania was named for William's William Penn's father, who was also named William, by the way. Um, Pennsylvania, meaning Penn's Woods, Sylvania in Latin, Woods. But from what you've gotten from this letter, it seems as though William Penn, the son, really didn't want to get into that. He didn't want it named Pennsylvania. That's correct. And in fact, we were having a group of elementary students here and pulled out this letter to show them why the colony was named Pennsylvania to discover that actually he was William Penn, complaining to a friend that he didn't like the fact that the king insisted on using his last name for his father's sake uh, to name the colony. He felt that was the height of, of pride and arrogance, and that didn't befit him as a Quaker. 
You know, in the you know, I, I have to admit that uh, I got my information from a story in the Philadelphia Inquirer that covered a lot of territory. But uh, one thing mentioned in the story is that Penn actually tried to pay a minister to change the name. He went around the king's back. Today, that almost would be seen as uh, political corruption. So, Vincent Fraley, what about that? I mean, uh, Penn tried to go behind uh, the king's back? Sure. It's an odd moral structure. On one hand, um, lest he be thought vain by his fellow friends, he was willing to bribe a minister to change it. Hmm. So, okay, we talked about... um possible arrogance and and that kind of thing. But why didn't he like the name, even though it was said that it was going to be named after his father rather than than William Penn himself? In the letter that he wrote to Robert Turner, um, he talks about the fact that he's afraid that people hearing that will think that it was his idea and not the king. And um, he actually asked his friend, Robert Turner, in this letter to please communicate to my friends that this wasn't my idea. Um, He did think maybe he could twist things a little bit. Um, He says that in Welsh, and he actually preferred the name New Wales for what we call Pennsylvania, um, that in Welsh, Penn also can be, um, is a word that means high. And Maybe they could pass it off as being, you know, that this was a hilly country <laughs> and instead of thinking of it as a namesake. Well, you know, the, the Wales part kind of surprised me, too. Where does uh, Wales come into, uh, into the, the Penn lineage, or why did he want Pennsylvania to be named New Wales? In fact, uh, his family did have land in Wales as well as in England and Ireland, and uh, many Quakers were in those countries. And so to him, uh, Wales was a country for which he had a lot of affection. He was hoping to establish a colony for Quakers. And so in that sense, it made sense to him to call it New Wales. I'm glad he didn't because uh, we have too many news. New York, (laughs) New Amsterdam, all those things. There were too many of them. But uh, Vincent, let me ask you this. uh, King, one of the things that uh, happened in this case that a lot of people aren't aware of in, through the history books, probably historians are, but uh, uh, it's not widespread, is that uh, King Charles actually owed money to Penn's father. And so giving him this land here in Pen- what became Pennsylvania was a way of paying him back, right? You're correct. I will uh, make one other comment in that letter to Robert Turner. Um, Penn notes that the minister he tries tries to bribe is a, a Welshman himself, and so he thought that would uh, increase his chances of having. That ah, increase. okay. Um, but so, at the, as was common at the time, officers would often pay upfront the cost of outfitting and equipping those under their command. And Admiral Penn, Penn's father, had racked up a sixteen thousand pound debt, which, if you adjust for inflation, that's north of. Three million uh, in today's pound sterling, so it's no small change. And um, it wasn't even a given that Charles would be forthcoming with repayment. Um, monarchies of all stripes across the world, down through time, have always been a creditor's nightmare, and, and Charles was no exception. What really allowed, uh, or sort of saved Penn, um, was that Charles truly respected and admired Penn's father, who had, uh, in fact, been aboard the ship that retrieved the king from his exile in Amsterdam. And also that uh, William Penn, the founder, shared a very close acquaintance with James, the king's brother, the Duke of York. So those personal relationships did help? 
Absolutely. Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I do find it interesting, too, that, as you said, that creditors didn't expect a whole lot when the monarchy owed them money. You would think that, uh, what was it, the king, what did he, he, he used the monarchy card, the monarchy card that, uh, hey, I'm the king, I'll pay you back when I want to? Absolutely. I mean, and if you think about it, um, it's not surprising that Charles wouldn't be so eager to pay the debt. Here was this stranger asking the king to repay a debt owed to his deceased father, um, all the while addressing Charles with thee and thou instead of the customary your majesty and other honorifics. And add to the fact that um, Penn was a Quaker, um, it really wasn't a given that he would, he would pay the debt in a timely manner. Mm. So, uh, so something else that uh, I, I understand is part of the story is that King Charles probably wanted to get Penn out of the country for religious reasons. In fact, he wanted to get the Quakers in general out of the country. Um, and so both on the king's part and on William Penn's part, there's both a, a monetary story here and then there's an also a religious freedom story. Um, and they go hand in hand. Well, you know, but, you know, we think of William Penn, the Quaker. But as this story points out, uh, William Penn wasn't always a Quaker. In fact, uh, as Vincent just uh, mentioned a few minutes ago about uh, William Penn's father, this was a military family and not pacifist. So when did uh, William Penn become a Quaker? And talk about that time in England when uh, King Charles wanted Quakers out of the country. He became a Quaker at the age of 22. So as a young man, um, he had earlier actually heard uh, Quakers preach and had been influenced by them. But as he became into a majority, he began to realize that's where his uh, own convictions lay. And it seems that his father um, supported him. They didn't have a fallout over it or anything of that sort. Um, the Quakers were one of many different groups in England at the time who were trying to what they call purify the Church of England. And there were still questions over whether or not England would stay a Protestant country or a Catholic country. James II, as Vince mentioned, was a friend of William Penn's, and yet uh, he was of, uh, Catholic. So there was a lot brewing in terms of what was the state religion and, and what would it look like. And many of these different factions began to think about leaving England and setting up somewhere else, going either into Europe or coming to the New World. But Charles II, the second, uh, actually went through his own uh, religious transformation, did he not? He did. At the end of the, his life, he also converted to Catholicism. Hmm. But, you know, what I find uh, kind of fascinating here, I have to actually have to smile about, is that even though, you know, going back over all this, that uh, Charles was paying a debt by giving William Penn this land uh, in the New World, uh, but at the same time, rather than just, you know, kind of brush his hands or wash his hands of it all and say, oh, he's, the pens are paid back, I don't have to worry about this any longer. He wanted something in return if there were riches in the new world here in Pennsylvania. That was a very standard kind of agreement, actually. And it, the first, when you think about it, the first groups that came over to this country from Europe, be they English, Spanish, or French, were looking for ways to enrich their economies. Uh, minerals like gold or silver, but also even things like wood. Uh, Europe was becoming deforested. So many trees had been cut to be burnt. 
um, for firewood, uh, that they were looking for this land for the natural resources. Mm-hmm. So that was common, huh? It was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, something else, and again, I'm referring back to the article and just hitting on little things here that, uh, you know, we see those paintings of William Penn over the year, the famous painting where he is meeting with some of the Native Americans here in uh, uh, Pennsylvania and signing uh, treaties and that kind of thing. Guy had a really long hair, really long curly hair, and you know wore that hat that uh, looks you know most people today recognize from the Quaker Oats box. You know, uh, and I'm joking about it, but I understand that uh, that was not William Penn's hair. It was not. Um, he was rendered mostly bald as a young child. Um, so for the majority of his life, he wore a wig um, in Pensbury Manor. Here in Philadelphia, uh, the estate of William Penn, they they have his wig stand. Well, what does that look? Oh, just the stand itself, not the wig. Yes. Yeah, I guess it would be tough for that wig to uh, survive for three hundred thirty years. Now, was that uh, the hairstyle of the times? That uh, down on the shoulders and so curly. It was common for for Quakers and for most gentlemen at the time to wear to wear a wig, a and to wear the um, for their wig to be long. Mm. So what else is there as we are celebrating uh, little-known facts about William Penn, uh, you know, during this month where we celebrate Pennsylvania's charter? uh, What are some other little-known facts about William Penn that may surprise some people? Well, one of the things related to the story we're discussing is the fact that while giving the land to William Penn repaid a debt of 16,000 pounds, William Penn then himself had to invest money to move the process through the English bureaucracy. And he ended up spending almost 12 million pounds for that. So right off the bat, it wasn't a great investment. No, it doesn't sound like it. And in fact, William Penn had problems managing money throughout his life and uh, ended up near the end of his life in debtor's prison in England for a while. Uh, He was released when Quaker friends helped to bail him out. Um, But that was an issue with him uh, throughout. That said, on the other hand, he was very successful at attracting people to Pennsylvania. There were 4,000 people who had immigrated here within the first three years. What kind of relationship, and I only have about 90 seconds left, what kind of relationship did uh, Penn have with, uh, and the Quakers have with the natives here in uh, Pennsylvania? William Penn himself had a very good relationship with them. Uh, Again, it it, it came from his Quaker belief. Um, beliefs, and he wished to treat them, maybe he didn't think of them as equals, but certainly as uh, co-inhabitants of the land. Unfortunately, his sons, who took over in the uh, early 1700s after William Penn's death and his wife's death, um, had a different point of view. There were, because of this huge rush of people coming to fill the land from Europe, there was a real strain on pushing the Native Americans further and further west. And uh, there's what's known as the walking purchase that happens uh, in the 1720s when 
the Native Americans and probably anybody today looking at it would say that the, the Penn Sons robbed the Native Americans of land and really changed the whole dynamic in this colony mm-hmm. in terms of relationship. Well, I want to thank both of you for being on for the, kind of like this mini lesson on Pennsylvania's founder, William Penn. Beth Twist Howding is the Senior Director of Programs and Services at the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, and Vincent Fraley, Communications Manager at this Historical Society. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. And by the way, to celebrate uh, Charter Day here in Pennsylvania, a number of the historical sites maintained by the state are free and open to the public this week. On tomorrow's program, we talk about pipelines.